sponsoring this podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation fundraising for military charities and they have been doing it for 13 years. Their next event is very, very soon. It is on the 17th and 18th of June at Old Leventonians RFC. It is the annual Rugby for Heroes Beer and Gin Festival. That's right, it is back. Live rugby, live music, beer, gin, street food, family attractions and all in aid of armed forces and veteran charities. This year, Rugby for Heroes Beer and Gin Festival is going to be supporting the 353 Charitable Trust. So get your backsides along to the event and join everybody else there. Tickets are free. You heard me right. The tickets are free. There's also camping and caravan uh, hookups and spots available on site. That's not free, but it's cheap as chips. Tickets are free, and if you want to stop on site, you can do. If not, stay somewhere local. These are brilliant events. I love the Rugby Heroes Beer and Gin Festival. My favourite day of the year. One of my favourite days of the year. Definitely. It's up there with the Wales versus England International every year as well. Come along. I will see you there. I might even buy you a pint. Get on to rugbyforheroes.org to find out how to get your tickets. It's on Eventbrite. It's on Eventbrite. So get on there. Rugbyforheroes.org. You'll find the Eventbrite link and you're going to reserve your free tickets. There'll be many podcast guests there. There'll be many podcast fans there. There'll be many friends there, colleagues and good people, drinking, being merry, being happy. Rugbyforheroes.org. And stay up to date with everything on the social media, at Rugby Number 4 Heroes. Also, bringing you this podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Founded in 1982, Aardvark has established itself as a major player in its field, renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation, working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. And so they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with a core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. As well as their core products and services, they also have an online shop where if you're an individual who works in a post-conflict zone in a high-threat situation, in a high-threat environment, you can get kit from Aardvark. Their website is aardvark.group. Go there and at checkout, use the discount code H-H-O-U-R. And while you're there, make sure you check out all of their products, all their services, including unmanned ground and air vehicles. Also bringing you this podcast today are Combat Cigars. Combat Cigars was founded in 2021 by three friends, three former colleagues in the Parachute Regiment, the British Army, and I'm very glad to say I am one of those three. Very glad to have been invited into the company, and it is super exciting 
to be working with those guys again. Combat Cigars sources its cigars from a family who have been rolling cigars in the heart of Colombia for over 200 years. The cigars that Combat Cigars supply to you are only available through Combat Cigars. You cannot get these anywhere else. Each cigar is unique, and we have four currently in the collection. We have the Last Post, we have the Oath of Allegiance, we have the Center of Mass, and we have the Victory. The Victory features on its cigar band the medal ribbon of the South Atlantic Medal with rosette. Very significant at the moment, given that it is the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict. Head over to combatcigars.co.uk to see the collection. Also check out the Combat Cigars Humidor, which is handmade out of ammunition tins and will keep your cigars perfectly stored for whenever you need them. When you think of cigars for your next event, or the next event you're at, be it a wedding, be it a mess do, a dining in, a dining out, a promotion, or just getting together with your crew, think Combat Cigars. CombatCigars.co.uk Shay Doyle, absolute pleasure to have you in HR Studio, mate. Very unexpected, and uh, thank you very much for taking to do a, a rather large detour with a maybe a mild hangover to come into the studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, Hugh, thank you for having me, mate. It's uh, it's great, great to be here, and uh, thanks for giving me the platform to come and have a talk. My my, my pleasure. You know, um, your story is pretty incredible. Uh, and I'll be honest, I wasn't aware of it until relatively recently, for for whatever reason. And then a couple of a couple of mutual friends, you know, Jay yeah. Tyler and saw James Deegan um, talking about it. I got intro to you, and 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 now we're here. One of the things that's really interested me in in hearing about your experiences and reading about your experiences is so in your story, uh, uh, you got yourself as a one of the most highly regarded, one of the most successful level one undercover operators that the UK police have seen. Is that fair to say? Um, I was a successful level one, you see. There's plenty out there done more than me, for sure, uh, who, who probably stories you'll never hear. And um, I'm probably one of the more high profile to come out, I suppose, you know, out of that world, the level one undercover world to, to speak out. So, look, I, I was I was I was reasonably successful uh, at what I did. Uh, and But yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say, you know, I'm there's plenty out there done, done, done similar. So you know, but it's just stories you're not going to hear. It's just the fact that mine, I've got a book out and I've come, come, come public if you like. You're very modest, <laughs> and and the protege of another very well regarded, very successful level one undercover operator in, in Christie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Christie. You know, um, X X three Para uh, Falcons veteran. Uh, you know, he, he was pivotal in sort of turning. The old undercover world, which was a bit sort of done by the seat of the pants, to professionalising it really, and, and he was sort of pivotal in getting that training to, to a real professional point. And yeah, he, he's my sort of mentor through through my undercover undercover world, which we talk about in the book. So to 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 my point, do you think it's a coincidence that two the two of you uh, being as uh, as good as you were in that role also had a the 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 similar background of being ex-military 
Um, coincidence or not? Um, no, I won't say it is a coincidence. I think, um, you know, we, we, myself and Christy share, you know, a similar story, if you like, you know, both from sort of rough areas of Manchester, both joined, uh, you know, uh, infantry combat units at, at 16 years of age. So uh, it does definitely shape you as a person and uh, fine-tune those skills around managing risk dynamically. You know, from a very early age, my brain was conditioned into that. And I think that's what the military very much did for me. And Christy obviously spotted my potential as a very sort of young in-service police officer uh, and saw a bit of himself, you know, as a fact that, I, I, like himself, had served in a military unit, um... And so, and came from a similar background in Manchester. So yeah, I do think um, he spotted that that, that 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 thing the military gives you that uh, that drive, that motivation, that uh, will to get involved in something others may not want to get involved in. That uh, you know ability to manage risk at a high level. So yeah, I do think it certainly had skills, and do think that um, it's probably no coincidence that uh, we both went on to be successful level one UCs. Why did you join up? Why did you join the military? Um, well, I'll talk about this in the book, you, um, you know, I came from a, a, you know, pretty rough area of Manchester, you know, none of my family were, um, or some of my family were on the wrong side of, wrong side of the law, you know, um, and uh, up to no good, and it would have been very easy for me to slide down that path, you know, a lot of my pals ended up, you know, doing jail time and stuff like that, and I always just felt I was capable of more than that, you know, um, not better than anyone, but I felt I was capable, capable of, of much more, and I wasn't particularly academic at school. Um, sports were my thing, and and so the army seemed a good fit for me. You know, it took me out of took me out of Manchester. Um, I had a, an inquisitive mind to see different places and travel. Um, I was fit, a fit fit young lad, you know, and the military seemed to tick all those boxes for me. So at sixteen, you know, it was a roof over my head, food in my belly, and a few quid in wages. Um, so yeah, that that was the reason really. You have any military in the family already, or not? Uh, do you know what? There was there was one, yeah, uh, an uncle of mine um, had served. Um, uh, he'd actually been, funnily enough, he got arrested for a, a historic um, shooting in um, Northern Ireland <laughs> a couple few years ago. Um, so he was actually involved in covert work in Northern Ireland, one of my uncles. But I'd never discussed it with him. It wasn't something that I, I, I only became aware of it as an adult. You know, it wasn't something that he would discuss with me. Um, so I wasn't sort of from some military family. Um, and he was involved in covert work in Northern Ireland. Um, oh, so when you say he got arrested for historic shooting, he was serving. Yeah, yeah, he's, oh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, no, no. He, he shot a, uh, he shot someone, um, he shot someone in Northern Ireland in the eighties, uh, an IRA player, uh, shot him dead, uh, and then they, um, they came and arrested him about four years ago, three, four years ago. What is that all about? Yeah, it's, that's madness. Yeah, but again, never not want to sit and tell stories about it. You know, he was so I wasn't following in some great tradition, family tradition of joining the military. Uh, it was only later in life, really. I, I knew he'd been in the military. I, I only sort of dragged these stories out of him because of the, the arrest. Uh, and it turns out, he, you know, he'd, he'd been working one of the one of those dodgy covert units they had out there that was uh, up to no good. Well, not up to no good. Up to uh, up to all sorts of stuff, shenanigans out there. At Pushing the, time. the boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You you served out there when it was still pretty pretty um, hot, right? I, I served out in Northern Ireland, but it was in the noughties. There was like nothing going on. Yeah, it was early noughties. Um, but um, you, you were nineties. Sorry, nineties. Sorry, yeah, late nineties. Yeah. Apologies. Yeah, apologies. It was late nineties. Yes. Um, well, mid to late nineties. Uh, so it wasn't. It wasn't like it was. You know, I, I was based. In, I, I did a few tours, in, mainly out of Besbrook in South Armagh. 
you know, which is a bottle tester, you know, as an 18 year old young soldier running out of there, zigzagging out the gates, and they've got sniper at work signs still up, still up there, you know. And it, it wasn't too long after a, a guy called Stephen Resterick had been shot dead by an IRA sniper team in South Armagh. So there was still a threat for sure. Uh, and then I was, did the Portadown uh, Orange Lodge marches a couple of years on the trot at uh, Portadown, Garvaki Road, and stuff like that. So that, that could get a bit hairy, but do you know what? It was I, I enjoyed my time in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, I enjoyed jumping on the choppers, getting out there, getting out into South Armagh, the rural areas, and doing the patrols, you know. So, yeah, I think it was a good, good learning ground for a young soldier. Yeah, so I always looked at it as a very different, in a similar way, actually, to thinking about what you did, you know, in the police with the undercover stuff, in that it's a very different beast when you are, when the enemy, in inverted commas, is, it looks like you, thinks like you, talks your language, knows your culture, knows everything, they know so much more, it's so much harder to bluff. It, it, there's also like an element of, you've almost got an element of uh, so much you can get away with. There's more you can get away with when you're dealing with someone who's not of speaking, doesn't speak your language, doesn't come from you from, is a completely different culture. I think it's almost easier in some respects to, to not get away with stuff, but you know, achieve the aim. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we all know that the, uh, the provisional IRA were, uh, you know, a, a ruthless adversary, weren't they? You know, they were they were very, very good at what they did. In fact, a lot, you know, a lot of the paramilitary groups from both sides were incredibly good at what they did. You know, and that's why that that, that raised on for the troubles raised on for as long as it did. When did you When did you get out? Uh, Two thousand and three. Oh, okay, I was in the noughties. I for some reason I thought yeah. you were out before that. No, two thousand and three. And then jumped straight into the police. So out the frying pan into the fire, really. You know. What brought on that decision? Um, do you know what? <clears throat> uh, and I cover this sort of uh, quite quite in, in the book, really. I had absolutely no desire to be in the police. You know, I didn't come from an area of Manchester where it was the done thing. You know, It just wasn't the done thing to join the police. And certainly a lot of my pals at the time, you know, uh, and, and some of my family members, it was like I would have, I was you know they ostracised me some of them you know I got cut out of a lot of people's lives for joining the police, and the reason it happened was my dad um, my dad committed suicide, uh, he hung himself, and uh, it basically took me to a real uh, turning point in the road you know of, of my life uh, sort of made me sort of reevaluate who I was and what I wanted out of life and essentially you know you, you can let these things eat you up or you can use it to kick you up the ass which is what I did. And I thought, I was, you know, I just got out of the army. I was working on a building site, and I was going to go back in the military um, because I was missing the the lads, the camaraderie. You know, Iraq was you know, proper booting off, and uh, I, you know, I thought you have a bit of that. I need to be with the lads, kind of thing, that camaraderie, uh, doing doing what you've been trained to do. Uh, so I was going to go back into. I was making enrolls to join join back up. Um, I'd not been out long, and then my dad killed himself. So I needed to be around for the family, for my mum. You know, be the breadwinner essentially. And at the time, I was hot carrying on a building site, and um, one of my friends who had served in the military with just joined, got him the police. So he, ring, he rings me up and he heard about my dad get dying, and um, said, "Look, you know, why, why don't you ever go to the police? Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it." Um, and I was like, "Fucking no chance!" You know, it's, it just wasn't it wash where I was from. You know, uh, a lot of my pals was. I was like, "Nah, not for me." And he's like, "Listen, you're a smart lad. You know, you're a, you're, you're a smart lad." You know, why why you give it a go? So it, with my dad dying and me needing to be around and me sort of getting sick of lumping bricks up and down ladders on on scaffolding, I thought, you know what, why not? So I yeah, uh, I, I put the application in and gave it a go. And there you go. Next thing next thing I know, I'm marching around the parade square again in bull boots and uh, training to be a policeman. <laughs> <laughs> did, did um Mike, did you did you realise your dad was at risk or not? 
Do you know what? Um, my dad had had a very difficult upbringing. He'd been pressed in care. And so, um, but he was a very, you know, I never saw my dad show any emotion. You know, uh, during my entire life, I can't look back and see that he showed any emotion of anything. And he was only 47 when he killed himself. Um, but, and you know, as a young person, you're still maturing. You don't really understand the risks around mental health. And you don't really, you don't sort of question what, what's my dad's baggage in his life. You know, you don't question that as a young man, do you? Um, and I look back now and go, I think, God, I wish I could have helped him. You know, I wish I could have, I would have seen the signs now because I understand mental health a lot more. But back then I was just a young man cutting about, doing me, doing me, having the crack out on, out on the lash with my mates or away in the army. But, but when I look back now, I see it was very, very obvious. He was struggling mentally massively, you know, and um, unfortunately, yeah, he took the decision to, to, to kill himself, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. You just you accept you accept your parents for what they are, don't you? And and you idolise them. You see everything in them as good, and you tend not to see the bad. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I had a terrible relationship with my dad. You know, it wasn't all it wasn't all harps and roses with my dad. You know, we, we used to have the odd scrap and that. You know, he, 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 I, I detail it in the book. You know, my dad, my dad's gift to me as a as a parent really was to make me tough because he didn't know any other way. Because in my dad's head, everyone was a predator. You know, fetched up in care around predators and some horrible things had gone on. I learned later in life, so he just saw everyone as a potential threat. So I, I realise now that actually he was instilling that in me as a young person, uh, and rather than putting the arm around me and doing it in a caring way, you know, he'd make me, you know, his idea of keeping me safe was to make me tough to the world. You know, so go and have that fight, get in that boxing ring. You know, don't don't be afraid of people. You know, you got to deal with everyone head on. So that's the attitude I took into everything. You know. Does that breed in you an element of paranoia in some way, or not? Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it absolutely does because you start to um, uh, don't never, never overtook me. I suppose paranoia it, it, certainly in, in my early life, but I was taught that if anyone gives you shit, you you, you stand up, you get you you meet them square on, like you know, and that's in his way. I know that he was trying to keep me safe, but really, it's not the way to develop a child you know it's not what I, you know i would do with my children who had children or you know i think anyone should should develop children that way really but you know but in a way it was a fantastic tool for me in the, in the careers i would have and say so it's not worked out too bad no <laughs> well yeah, exactly well. yeah no well well this is it yeah but no it, it definitely it, it, it i wasn't i didn't sit and worry about too much about what the consequences of something might be in a dangerous situation you know where others may have done uh, because i always felt i had the tools to get myself out of it Interesting. Um, uh, what was the contrast between the police and the army like? Oh well, I mean, um, what's depot like? <laughs> well, police training. You know, for me, having been through you know infantry training, it, it was it was pretty much physically a doddle, physically a doddle. How old were you? Twenty four. Twenty four. Yeah, yeah twenty four. Um, physically a doddle. You know, to, in to comparison to the military, it was just no challenge whatsoever. Um, there wasn't really much focus on that. What I found challenging about police training was having to sit and do exams because I'd not been an academic individual. Um, um, having to sit there and study something to do an exam was what I found challenging, concentrating on something, you know. But luckily, you know, through that process, I learned that I had a quite, a, quite a good memory and I was able to remember detail quite well, which served me well in, you know, working undercover. And... Before or not, I was passing the exams quite highly. 
Did you go in? Did you join the police with any qualifications from school or college or anything? Like nothing. No, nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. I left school at fifteen. I was uh, because of where my birthday falls. I was fifteen. I left school, and in terms of GCSEs, uh, you know, we didn't turn up because we weren't interested. I just, all, all, all I thought I'd be was a bricklayer, you know, like like the family trade, if, if you like. Was I thought I'd just go and get on the site and learn to be a bricker. I didn't, what do I need maths for? Obviously, you do need maths in bricking, but when you're 15, 16, you don't see it like that. You see it as laying brick. I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd get on with one of my dad's pals, learn how to bricklay, and that'd be me. There was no other aspirations in me at that age. Where do you think your mental acuity came from, come from, and, and that, that sharp memory and a sharp mind? My dad. My dad was super intelligent. My, my dad was a very, very intelligent man. Um, funny, witty, quick, quick-witted. Um, you know, never saw anyone get the better of my dad in a, in a, in a, in a conversation or an argument. You know, uh, certainly it was from my dad, and certainly people you know who, who knew my dad say to me, "You get it off your dad because your dad was super smart, and your dad could, your dad should have, you know, could have been anything he wanted to be. You know, uh, he was super smart, super sharp." It's interesting, isn't it? Like you're thinking about what you're saying there. I've not thought about it this way before, but really, your first, the first weapon in your armory, I'm, I'm assuming, is language. Probably was the same when you were doing your, you know, your work in the police later on. Right, first weapon in your army is language to defuse or, yeah. or aggravate a situation. That, you know, communication. You yeah, communication. Uh, communi- communication. You know, it's, 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 it's your first and biggest tool in policing. You know, because really, you don't want to aggravate any any situation. You want to deal with it as as with as little physical conflict physical uh, conflict as you can. You know, uh, and at first, when I joined the police, you know, I went in with the the infantry soldier mentality. You know, head on, deal with you. No no f's given. You know what I mean? That was my mentality. But you, I soon learned that actually, you can't take that mentality into policing. You know, you've got to you've got to negotiate with people. You know, and I became a much better diplomat with practice. You know, over over the over the years in policing than. So I learned not to dive in. And actually, do you know what? Because I was because I was from a council estate, because I'd been fetched up around people who had been villains or been criminals or been involved in, you know, been to jail and stuff, I was actually a very good communicator. I knew how to speak to people from those communities, you know, who who, who were on the wrong side of the law sometimes. And that was actually a huge skill for me when I um, got into the more covert units I was involved in. Hmm. So... Were you, did you enjoy being doing the, being the Bobby on the beat side of things then? Apart from the paperwork, obviously. Well, I only ever did two years, which is the minimum you have to do as a probationary constable. Uh, two years in uniform. Uh, and you know what? There was things I did enjoy about it. Uh, you know, you, you, you're driving around with the blues and, you know, blues and twos on the lights and, and you know, that, that kind of stuff. But again, the novelty of that soon wears off, you know. Um, uh, the novelty of going to domestic after domestic, fight after fight, pub brawl after pub brawl, eventually it all just wears off on you, you know, the, the, you kind of think, oh, another one, you know, and uh, I can understand how cops who stay in, in, in response policing for a long, long time absolutely must wear them down, you know, dealing with life's, you know, life's problems, you know, you, you often find it's the same people who, who you go into, it's the same houses you go to all the time, it's the same people drunk and they smack the missus, or it's the same people that are involved in domestics, it's the same people you're dragging out of pubs for attacking people, you know, it's it's often, quite often, a small nucleus of people who cause you massive problems in policing. Mm. So, yeah, I did, I did enjoy it, but it, it wasn't really for me, uniform policing. Um, uh, what was missing from it? Pardon? What was missing from it? 
do you know what? Like I say, it's just that it's that roller coaster wheel, it's that hamster wheel of going to those same jobs and stuff. And because you know, you know, I had to hold my hands up. You know, I was a young man straight from the military. You know, I, I could be volatile. I could be volatile myself. You know, and and in policing, that's not really how you want to be. You know, and I, and I hold my hands up. You know, if a robust response was required, I had no problem using, you know, being robust. And at times, got myself, you know, in a little bit of lumber with that. You know. Not, not to say that I was involved in police brutality of any kind like that, but you deal with violent people every day of the week, and sometimes talking to them isn't going to cut it. You have to go hands-on. It's just a facts of policing, you know? And then you're going to get complained about, because why not complain about you? You know, why not? There's nothing to lose for, for someone complaining about you. You've arrested somebody. They could be, you know, I, I, have, I have people threaten to sh shoot my missus and all sorts of stuff. And then you, you go hands-on to arrest them. And they, they complain that I'm... I'm the big bad policeman bully who got bullied at school and all this nonsense that they spout, you know. Um, I've, met, I've met the most violent, disgusting people here in the, out there in the public and this is what cops have to deal with every day of the week. Uh, yeah, and, and now I think as well, the smartphones and the cameras everywhere. Yeah. We met mental, almost a blessing it wasn't around back then probably. Yeah, yeah, well... I mean, they, 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 were, they were fat, you know, they were coming into into things and you, you always get those people who, I was like, record me, who cares, you know what I mean? And if you commit an offence, you're nicked, that's you, done, you're in, you know? And if you didn't, off a pop, you know? I, I was always very fair with people. I was always, always, always tried to be very, very fair with people until it got to the point where you could no longer be fair with them and, and they were not playing that game with you back, you know? And, you know, I was very... As many people as I may have arrested and had to fight with, I helped more, I helped more people. You know, I got two commendations in the first two years, both, neither for dealing with maniacs, they were for uh, saving people who were trying to take their own lives. One, one was jump, trying to jump off a motorway bridge and I pulled them on the other side. And the other one I found in a, um, in a vehicle, is a high-risk missing, uh, who um, attached a hose pipe into his uh, car, was filling with fumes and smashed me away and give him CPR. So, you know, as many people as I might have arrested or might say he was this, that, the other, I help more people as well, you know, vulnerable children, stuff like that. Did you have any competition at home when you, once people found out you'd actually in a serving? Um, didn't really, not not really confrontation as such, but uh, yeah, do you know what? Without doubt, some of my pals pulled away from me, you know, um, which was fine. You know, you find out who your true friends are, don't you? You know, and I was getting to the age where I think, you know, I'm not bothered now. I'm on my own path, you know, and that's what I'm going to do. So, uh, so yeah, not, not no real confrontation, but, you know, snidey remarks, you know, and all this caper, you know, that goes about, you're in the police now and all that. Yeah, yeah. Just walked off a duck's back to me, really. Walked off a duck's back to me in the end. Um, my knowledge of what happens at the end of a two-year probation is completely dark. So at the end of a two-year probation for, for an officer... What available is the option to them? What available is the option to them? What options are available to them at the end of that? Traditionally, so what, do, you, yeah. do, you, do you get a choice of what you're going to do? Do you get offered certain stuff? As, no, as no. All it means is that you've you've successfully completed the probationary period. So now you are confirmed in rank as a constable. So what that means is, if specialist posts arise, you are now eligible to apply for them. And it's pretty unlikely you're going to get one with two years in because you're not that experienced. You know, as much as you might think you're a real street warrior with two years in, you're not. You've not seen it all. You've not done it all. And I, I held myself in that, you know, bracket as well. You know, you learn every day in policing. There's something, there's, there will be a situation around, you could do 30 years in policing, and there'll be a situation around the corner that no one's seen before. You know, it, it's, it's an amazing job, you know, for, for, for having to think quickly in situations that might develop. You know, it's a crazy, crazy job. Um, but what happened with me was, uh, so 
you know, I, I was what we call a thief taker. So um, a thief taker is someone who, a cop that goes out and nicks, nicks people for, you know, for proper crime. Uh, not just bits and pieces and, you know, I was never into parking tickets and all that kind of stuff. It weren't my... We just wouldn't bother with them? No, well, not saying I wouldn't bother, you know what I mean? If it was if it was really, like, antisocial, then yeah, you know, but I didn't, I didn't spend my day looking... I mean, you know, I did work with people who spent the day looking for people whose tread on the tyre was, you know, a millimetre out. You know, I did work with those kind of, kind of cops, you know. They are out there who have got, like, a... You know, they get a, they get a fetish for traffic offences, you know, it's crazy, you know, and I just could never get excited about traffic offences. Obviously, you know, serious stuff, yeah, obviously, but bits, bits of misdemeanours and that. I was like, I'll, I'll go and catch a burglar or a robber, you know what I mean? And that, that was the type of police officer I was, you know. I'm not saying I was better or they was better or I'm worse or whatever. It's just horses for courses, isn't it, you know? Just tra traffic, minor traffic offences never really got me very excited, I have to be honest. But... Um, so yeah, I would go after robbers and burglars and drug dealers, you know, and uh, I became quite adept at it. So by the end of my two years, I was I was top of the lockup charts, if you like. How would you go? So explain it to me, though, right? So everyone's doing the same job. Um, you go out. <clears throat> what was your day? If you is that what you were looking for? What was your day to day? How so how were you going about it? Well, in uniform. In uniform response, you'll get allocated jobs. So they'll have a massive queue of jobs waiting for you. It could be someone's house has been burgled, you need to go and take a statement, or someone's been assaulted, or, or whatever it may be. It might be a concern for someone's welfare or something like that. So you, you'll have the radio, they'll send you from job to job to job, and then in between you'll get uh, emergency response jobs. Someone's come, someone's getting kicked in now or whatever. Someone's door's going in now, you've got to go to the burglary or, or wherever. And then you'll, you'll break off whatever you're doing and respond to the immediate response jobs. Um... And so, like I say, it can be no no two days are ever the same in policing, you know. Uh, very very uh, certainly response policing. So you'd elect to take the, you'd volunteer yourself for those those robberies, those, those jobs you're interested. Oh no in. no no. So I you know, as well as as well as that, you get an intelligence briefing every day. So you might see something like um, uh, Billy Smith is wanted for six burglaries, six robberies, or whatever, you know. And I knew that he was operating on my, on my patch, and I might know where Billy Smith's girlfriend is he's a bit on the side is you know what i mean so i would i would always um uh make sure i was up to date with everyone's intelligence you know and if someone was on my patch was you know was sort of high profile wanted then i'd make it my i'd make it my mission to go and get them you know <laughs> so i'd turn up at their, their 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 baby mothers as we call it you know i'd, I'd sit and wait at their baby mothers because i knew they'd turn up at some point and i'd grab and i'd snatch them you know and, and then they'd come <laughs> and i was got, i got quite good at that you know i got a bit of a reputation for it so how did that lead on to the the undercover work? Because if I'm thinking, you, you weren't you weren't long out probation before you got offered that, right? No. So what happened was, um, literally, literally a day before my probation was up, a, D, a DCI uh, who was the um, who ran the CID asked to see me. So I thought I was in the shit. I thought, what's he want to see me for? The day before. The day before my probation was up, um, I, I thought. Oh, Bloody hell, you know. And I, at the time, I was getting a bit disillusioned with it. So I was thinking again of going back in the army. So I'd actually told my sergeant, look, I think I, I've had a go. You know, it's a bit of an headache, really, policing. You know, and uh, I'm going to go back in the army. You know, and I'd, I'd had a bit of a chat. Uh, and they're like, oh, you, you know, you've done really well. You, you're a lock-up machine, you know, and tried to sort me around. I was like, do you know what? It's not for me. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back in the army. And um, the day before my probation was up, a couple of days after this chat, uh, a DCI grabs hold of me and makes me come to his, uh, sends me a message, come to my office, and he's quite a scary guy to be honest with you. And everyone was about a bit, of, bit, bit wary of him, you know. He's a proper old school like DCI Gene Hunt type, you know. So, so I went sort of bricking myself, sat outside his office, thinking, what have I done now? Like, you know, I'm in the shit again. Like, but um, he offered me a job, 
on his organised crime unit, which was not the undercover unit, which was uh, basically a um, plainclothes unit that operated out of the police station. And they had this little office which was, had locks on the doors and, you know, you weren't allowed in there if you didn't if you weren't part of the unit. And you'd see them kicking around in short in jeans and T-shirts and then they, they'd go out there with, in plain cars and smash doors in and get guns back and kilos of, kilos of coke or, or, or heroin or whatever. And they'd come in with two prisoners. You'd see them there at all times of the day and night. You know, they have, they have their secret, like, surveillance vans and stuff and all that. So he offered me a job on there uh, without any process, which kind of put a few people's... Uh, Knows he's out of joint, really, because uh, why is this sort of two-year sprog been invited into this under, uh, uh, covert sort of uh, organised crime unit? So I went in there, and really, really, that's when I really started to enjoy policing. Well, why? Well, going back, why were you? Why were you offered it? Because I was, I was constantly locking up people for crime. I was constantly out. We call it proactive arrests. I was making proactive arrests all the time. I wasn't just going from job to job like a, a, a statement taker, which a lot of cops will do that. You know, a lot of cops, just, they, they won't look for things. A lot of cops will just go statements, job to job, statement to statement. That's their day, go home, and they don't want the headache of going on. I was very proactive. Um, you know, if a, like I said before, if a drug dealer was wanted, I'd go and find them. Even though it wasn't really my remit, I'd go and find them. Or if I saw someone... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I used to jump. There was a certain alleyway where, on my patch, where uh, heroin dealers were, were meeting um, customers just to serve up heroin. So I used to like wait. If I wanted, if I wanted a lock up, I just wait down there, and I knew one of them would turn up, and I'd just walk down and jump on a jump on a heroin dealer and, and fetch him in. You know, um, a huge part of that's got, that attitude there has got to be from your upbringing and that and that. Comp- I mean, even before the military, that upbringing that. Being around, being around those kind of characters growing up, understanding them, and obviously yourself being physically capable. Yeah, absolutely. No one, uh, them, I knew the modus operandi <coughs> of, of of how you know street criminals operated because I'd, I'd been friends with some people like this, you know, before. So I knew how they operated. I knew where they operated. I knew how, how they did things. So I knew how to catch them. I knew how to catch them, and it was like shooting fish in a barrel for me. You know what I mean? So you know, so and I just got a reputation as being a thief taker. And it was as simple as that. And um, the DCI spotted it because he, he, you know, he, he would check on every who's doing what, you know, around the nick. And uh, he spotted, he spotted it. And it's like this guy keeps appearing at the top of the rest charts every, every, every month, like you know. Um, and I was getting some good, good prisoners in for a uniform cops. But you know, sometimes I was coming in with half a kilo of coke uh, and uh, you know a, a prisoner with it. And uh, as a uniform cop, that's quite unusual, you know. Uh, I was catching burglars in in, in the act, you know. Um, so. Um, some luck, some a knack, a knack for it, you know, and um, it was quite unusual for, for uniform cops to do that, you know, without, it's not only pre-planned intelligence-led operations that bring in half a kilo of coke and stuff like that, and I was stumbling across this stuff, but, you know, people say, oh, you're lucky, but you make your own look because I was looking for it, I was looking for it, you know, I was actively seeking it, actively looking at all the intelligence that other cops might not have bothered, you know, with, you know, and it wasn't with any aim in mind to be anywhere. It's just because it interested me. It simply interested me and made my day quicker and better. <laughs> and that was it. You know, that was my motivation. Uh, so he gets me into the um, organised crime unit. Uh, and then I'm surrounded now by guys who've got a lot more experience than me. Some detectives. You know, they've been in the cops 10 years plus. They've got a lot of, um, you know, experience. Some of them have been around undercover work and things like that. Uh, a lot of ex-military guys in there. You know, it was a really, real hardcore, um, the, the nucleus of that unit actually were all ex-military. So, you know, really robust lads. They didn't, they didn't give a shit about going through gangsters' doors. You know, they weren't, they weren't scared. They weren't bothered. Uh, and it, and it, I really, really uh, gelled with that group of people. 
and really, really started to enjoy policing. You know, I was running around in my jeans and t-shirts now, me, you know, my trainers, and uh, it, we were doing, like, surveillance at night and stuff and plotting up on armed robbers and, you know, getting keys of coke back and stuff and guns and stuff. It's like, you know, for me, it was like the Sweeney, it was like the professionals, you know, in my head. How big was the team? Uh, it's about 15, on, 15 to 20 on there, yeah. No, not big at all, then. No, not big no, at all, no. Very, very small, very small, small sort of... Uh, Band, band of people really you know uh, and it's it, it's a fantastic experience so I've only been in there about six months and one of the lads uh, says to me um, have you seen that covert operations are recruiting for level one UCs I was like what's that he's like level one undercovers it's like the highest level of undercover what you can do in the cops and he's like uh, I tried it I tried to go for it a couple of years back he says and uh, I got to sort of the last last end, last sort of select pieces of selection and, 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 I, and I fluffed it got knocked back but I think you'd be really good at it when you're talking level one sorry to interrupt when you're talking level one you mean like completely embedded in whatever in, uh, environment community of a target of gang environment you yeah. try of, you know the target yeah, so, 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 so I mean I'll long term yeah I'll explain um, within the UK policing framework you've got two levels of undercover work level two so level two undercover work is typically where a Undercover officer, level two officer, level two undercover officer, will portray himself as a uh, a junkie, if you like, someone who's addicted to heroin or crack cocaine, and they'll dress accordingly. You know, they'll look like they'll look like a, a heroin addict, or a crack user. Uh, they'll look scruffy. They'll smell, you know, pour a can of tenant super over there or something like that. You know, to so they smell right, and, and you know they they go into to that depth of. Um, and then they'll go on the street and buy crack and heroin off street level dealers, really. That's a typical level two operation. They may last a couple of weeks, they may last six months, 12 months. And generally what they'll do is they'll deploy, go and make a buy, get introduced to a drug dealer, th generally through other street people, other users. They'll buy drugs, uh, they'll put it in an evidence bag and they'll, they'll you know, come away and go, go, back, go, out, go back out the next, go home, go back out the next day, enroll and go and buy, go and buy street level amounts of drugs. Level one um, <clears throat> is much more in-depth. So this is where you now, um, your entire identity or undercover identity is supported with all the documentation you might have, credit cards, driving licence, passports in different names. You know, that's that's the level of uh, backstopping that, that goes into your legend. And you could you will then take on really high-risk community infiltration. So, so, so Mossai, for example, an area in Manchester that I was uh, I infiltrated, uh, that was synonymous with gun crime, loads of historic murders, gang crime, really violent lads with firearms shooting each other. Um, and so I infiltrated that community for, well, heading on for two years. Um, other, other, other subjects of operations might be, you know, a really sort of high-level organised crime group that are maybe, you know, selling coke and selling heroin at high level or importing guns or something like that. And then they'll try and get infiltrate that group, that network, uh, over a long period of time. Or it may be a terrorist organized, a terrorist terrorist cell. You know, level ones can be can be used against ter terrorists as well. So, it's the high level stuff. So, am I right in saying that the reason between the the level one, level two, or one of the one of the differences with that, um, you know, you got that whole false background set up for you, everything, false identity, all of that stuff. Is that because the targets you're trying to infiltrate are more switched on, more diligent, more resources at their hand to try and sniff out yeah. bluffers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not taking away from the lads and girls that do uh, level two UC work. You know, it's a dangerous, dangerous job. And, in some, and in some ways, more, more dangerous than the level one at times because 
quite often street level criminals are more willing to use violence in the moment than high level organized criminals because high level organized criminals violence is a tool violence is a tool to be used as and when it's needed um sometimes on the street street criminals you're dealing with people who themselves have got drug habits drink habits volatile tempers unpredictable unpredictability um and also you know um as as a purporting to be a drug user you've got to be subservient a bit to the to the drug dealer because you need that drug dealer don't you to get your fix whereas i could play a criminal that wasn't particularly subservient to other criminals you know i was somebody i was a criminal i my my role essentially would be not as a an organized criminal you know a, a serious armed robber so a serious armed robber i don't know if you've ever met any they don't really go around licking people's asses, you know. They, they tend to be quite robust individuals that, uh, that that can tell someone to fuck off if they need to, you know. So and I, and I, I portrayed that kind of role. Um, yeah, going back to that subservience, and <clears throat> to your point on that, that subservience can attract unwarranted, out of the blue, violence, right? Yeah, because... Because people take advantage of weak people. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you find in the criminal world, there's a lot of bullies, you know. You only have to look at anything in jail, you know. It's people have their in jail. People, there's a lot of bullying goes on, and in the criminal world, there's a lot of bullying going on. You know, uh, they want people um, in fear because fear is a tool in the criminal world. You know, and so it, it's to keep people in line. But also, if you're buying, if someone's, you know, a heroin addict, for example, might be might have a hundred pound a day habit. Now that's five, six, seven hundred pound a week in in that dealer's pocket. You know, uh, maybe not hundred pound. You know, maybe fifty pound a day habit or whatever. Uh, now that's a lot of money. When you've got twenty of those coming to you, serving you up every day, that's thousands of pounds every week. Now they don't want them that person going to another drug dealer, so they'll threaten them. You know, you get your gear off me. You know, and if you don't, there's problems for you. You know, and so it ain't like uh, it ain't like waitrolls. You know, they don't get nice customer service off, off drug dealers. You know, it just doesn't work like that. I get, I bet you can get some good drugs and waitress if you ask the right people. <laughs> <laughs> High quality stuff. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Joking, joking about waitress, <laughs> Jesus. Um, mate, level one or level two, regardless, the training, the tra so like the selection's one thing, which I'm sure you know, you're going to talk about, but the training as well. There must be some specialist training that you have to undertake to take on those roles. I mean, you know, we were talking about... The level two, you just mentioned yourself there, level two is a flipping difficult role. I mean, I would just think when you were talking about that, pouring a can of, can of flipping tenants over your head, <laughs> getting dressed up like a junkie, that's, that's like acting in the most hardcore, most difficult environment at the same time as trying to be a police officer and get everything you need to get. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they do a, they do a tough, tough job and they deserve all the professional <coughs> plaudits they get, you know. I have to be honest, it's, it's probably not one, probably not a role I'd have wanted, you know, undercover. For me, it was like, you know, I want to go straight to level one stuff, running around in a nice motor, then, um, then uh, getting dressed up as a junkie every day, you know. But um, but it's a, it's a tough job and they're very, very brave people that go and do it. So, is there, in fact, let's talk about, let's talk about selection. How did you end up what happened with the selection? How did you end up getting, going at that selection? What was that like? How long did it last? So, so you're not on it every day. You go back to you go back and do. Your, it's not like it's not like SAS selection where they go, they disappear for six months only, and then they're on selection until they're not on selection. Okay. Uh, it's not like that. You 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 are called in to do different testing things. So it can be uh, psychometric tests, intelligence tests, psychiatric tests, 
uh, role-playing scenarios where you know with, with different degrees of difficulty. Um, then there's a bit of a mentoring stage, and they're just having a look at you. Are you right for this world? I've got the mental dexterity. You know, and I found out through through this process, uh, doing all these intelligence tests and psychometric tests. I, I, apparently, I had a pretty high IQ, um, which you know was a surprise to me more than anyone, to be truthful. And um, I was able to retain information. You know, uh, my, my, my memory at that point in my life was pretty infallible. I could just remember things first time, you know, and that was a massive skill in undercover policing, as you can imagine. And I could I could relay uh, conversation verbatim, you know. I did could, you have that from when you were a kid? Yeah, I think I did. I think I did. I think I did. without realizing. I think um, you know, um, it's funny because I always speak to like you know my old army pals, and like um, I go, I and I always like sort of imposter syndrome. So how, how have I, you know, someone's going to find me out at some point, you know, having a laugh with a pint with lads. <laughs> someone's going to find me out at some point. I've just sort of stolen a living, really, you know. And the lads from the army always say to me, no, you you were always a little bit brighter than most of us. I was like, was I really? And they're like, yeah, you was. We, we knew you'd do something like this. You know, we knew that you had something like this in your locker. So it was a surprise to me, really, that, I, you know, I was almost, you know, still, still to this day, I have a little bit of imposter syndrome, you know, just sort of been... I'm a blagger from a council state in Manchester, you know what I mean? But did I write at it? Yeah, you can be both, though. Successful and a blagger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, you know. But, um, but yeah, no, I, it was only because I had the willingness to put myself into these situations. So you know, I went through I went through the selection and, um, you know, uh, all the, the, the you, you get to a final course. And when I, when I first went for selection at the time, it's not the same now, which is why I'm openly talking about it. Uh, Greater Manchester Police and the Met were the only two forces in the UK who could run level one selection and training. Um, it's uh, and it was quite uh, sought after. So nationally, there'd be about four hundred people going to get onto that course. Um, you know, going through the same intelligence tests and just this, you know, testing scenarios and stuff. And actually, when we got to the course, there was seven of us left. Only seven of us to the final course. And then on on the final course, which is very much based around putting you in high pressure scenarios, um, uh, sleep deprivation, uh, dropped in the middle of nowhere and stuff, all sorts of stuff, f f strange and funny stuff, which I detail more in the book uh, I go on about. It's really, really challenging. And you know, you'll know yourself, you really find out who you are and who other people are when they've got no, had no sleep, a little food, <laughs> don't you? You know, you really find out someone's real true character. And have they got the mental dexterity to still operate well and operate professionally? Are they safe to still operate? And not many people are. You know, it's um, you either have that or you don't. It's a very difficult thing to train into somebody that. You know, um, and you know, luckily for me, I, I had that capability. Uh, and yeah, only only three of us passed the course. So from four hundred who went to the open days and tried it, three of us three of us passed as level one UCs. So a zero point seven five percent pass rate. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Your maths is better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> if I was right, yeah, flipping heck. And that's, but so those people who passed there with you, that was just passing to go on uh, undercover work. Does that mean you're definitely going to get selected for a job? Does that mean no. you, uh, and it, does it mean either level two or level one? No, what no. does it mean? So, so, no, this would be level two and level one trained separately. Oh, so okay, there's a, okay. they, 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 level two's their pathway. Level one's a different pathway uh, that I was on at the time. Uh, so these these are people now have passed to be. They, they've, you, it's literally. I suppose it's like um, anything. Just because you've passed it doesn't necessarily mean you are the the finished polished article ready to go. You aren't. 
you know, you've got no experience operationally undercover. You've simply passed a course that says you may have the attributes to be successful undercover. That's it. And so now you've got a, there's no guarantee that you're going to get to the unit. Uh, and these are people from all over different forces, you know, it's the defectuating isn't just Great Manchester Police, like I was, it's people from different forces. So I think two of us from GMP and, and one from us from another force. Um, and so I was told, just because you've passed the course, don't think you're going to get invited into our unit. You know, it doesn't mean you're sort of badged up in the unit now, you know. That's the GMP undercover unit. Yeah, which yeah. was called Amiga. So that was known as Amiga, it's not called that and it's, it's, it's no longer exists. Uh, which is why I've come out and spoke about it because this this training's changed now and the 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 undercover unit doesn't exist anymore. Which is why I, I, I feel free to talk about it, you know, um, because I wouldn't want to betray anyone's confidence or put anyone at risk. That's not my not my agenda at all. Um, so yeah, the unit was called Amiga, and that was quite a prestigious unit to be in. You know, they were real sort of um, uh, forebearers of undercover work in the UK. You know, they've done some really high level stuff, and the the guy that sort of uh, founded Amiga. Uh, was really sort of um, highly thought of within the covert world. Uh, very, very smart guy. Um, and he sort of uh, professionalised undercover policing and uh, made it a real, you know, let's get the best of, the best cops to do this. Let's get let's really weed out the, the wheat and the chaff and let's get the best people to do it. And made it a really challenging selection procedure. Um, and yeah, I was fortunate to pass, but I was told you may not, you may not get the call. It depends on your profile, you know. So, you know... Um, so, the job you need to match the job to the profile. So we're not good me playing, playing a, a paedophile, you know, because I just don't match that profile. Uh, but um, it, for for an armed robber or something like that, you know, I was bang on, bang on the money. Um, so um, I, I literally went back to my unit. I was a bit, it was sort of crestfallen really, because I, I tried my hardest for like eight nine months to get through this selection to be told you might not ever get used anyway. And then you went back to your uniformed unit? No, no, I went back to the organised crime unit. The oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah so, sorry. so I, I, went, I went back to the organised crime unit. <coughs> so I finished, I finished the selection on the Friday, went back to my job on the Monday, told I might never get the call. And Monday afternoon, I get, I get called into the office by my boss at the time there, uh, Brendan. And he says to me, uh, pack your shit up. Uh, the ACC's um, authorised your transfer to Amiga. You know, you go into the undercover unit. So I was, I was back for a, a morning and I was posted straight to the undercover unit. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I bet there's some alphas in that group. Oh, mate, the egos are um, honestly <laughs> you've never you've never you've never ever met anything like it. The egos are tremendous. Uh and that's just the management that only UCs where you can get to the UCs. You know. But <clears throat> are you gonna be like that though, right? I'm I'm assuming. I mean, you know, I've I'm reading your book. I'm not finished yet, but I'm most of the way through it and you, you, you get that sense all the way through it of the the huge demand and very specific huge demand on 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 what the personality should be for in your in your you know in your role as an armed you know armed armed robber or organized like, criminal uh, yeah. organized criminal um and how strong that personality needs to be to to, to demonstrate that because i mean the, and the other thing is that the, the the personality you're portraying a lot of the time all of the time, when you were, uh, you were amongst the, the those criminals you were trying to infiltrate, um, was is not your personality inherently, right? It's not, but it is you. You don't, you can't, you cannot keep up pretending to be someone else for years at a time. You will be, you will get caught out. So you are being you, but with a criminal slant. So I never had to really step outside who I am as an individual too much, you know. 
Um, there, but for the grace of God, I could have been that individual. I could have been that person. So I found it very natural to to portray myself as a criminal. You know, um, it came very naturally to me. I didn't have to go into role and uh, you know deep breathing exercises to get myself in the in in the space. You know, I didn't have to do that. You know, I was just being me, but with I always say I was being me, but with more money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah and but you're right you know none of us like to admit we've got an ego do we but we all have an ego you know and um, at the end of the day when you are around serious gang members who have access who you know could be carrying a firearm who you know have and are capable of serious serious violence you know you have to portray yourself that you are somebody who's a serious individual yourself and they have to believe that and if you're acting it they ain't going to buy it because these people live on instinct. They've been to prison. They've got to, they, have, they have that criminal awareness, you know. And if they aren't smelling it on you, then you're gone. You ain't going to be convincing. So, you know what? As egotistical as it may sound, I could portray myself as a very serious person, if need be. What's the danger of it going too far and you posing yourself as a threat to them and then that causing an issue as well? A very, very fine line to tread, you know, because... If you don't portray that you can be a threat, then you could become the victim, couldn't you? But if you do portray you're too much of a threat, then you could also become the victim because we need get, we need rid of this fella, you know? So it's a very fine line to tread. Um, you have to be proportionate to the level of target, but equally you've got to look think of your own self-preservation, you know, while achieving the objectives of the operation. Get gathering that evidence, gathering that intelligence. So that's the skill, really. And when you find that person who can do that, who can manage that risk dynamically, who can portray themselves convincingly, who can then remember all the intelligence and the evidence. It's a rare beast, you know, it's a rare person. And uh, who can then do it for week after week, year after year, undercover, and then go home and have a normal life as well. You know, that, that's the difficult part of it. I actually found working undercover less stressful to me than managing my home life at times, which sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because... Um, for example, Moss Side, where I was working undercover. At the time, don't now, but I lived I lived nine miles away from Moss Side. I'd grown up three miles away from Moss Side. So I was getting compromised on the plot daily, almost daily at one point. And I was managing that. And I, when I went home, I'd be exhausted because I would stay in Moss Side where I was staying for weeks on end. You know, I lived, I lived there. I, I didn't go home at night and, you know, slip out a roll and have a bath and that was me. I lived there. I was there every day, every night, portraying that person. How was that situation like that? So, you've been in an area where you were very close to where you grew up and lived and known. It was ridiculous. Where was the risk assessment? <laughs> well, this is it. You know, and this is this is this is the, the, the what I talk about in the book. The reality is that should never have happened and would not happen now. Would not happen today. You know, thank God, um, because it, it, it still, I still carry the burden of that operation to this day. I still carry the risk from the operation to this day. And um, um, I still have to plan how I do things to avoid certain places, situations, because of the operation to this day. Why, why I can't have my face on camera today, you know? So it's still impacting on my life, um, and it should never have happened. Uh, and uh, if there was a risk assessment, I never saw it. But equally, people could say, well, you're to blame. Why did you do it if you knew all that? So my answer to all of that tonight is this. I was 25 years of age. I'd not, Is that all you were? Yeah, 25. Jesus and in, well, no, yeah, and in 25, 26. Um, I just got into this elite club within policing, you know, 
I wanted to prove myself. I just wanted, I was pumped full of, you know, I was absolutely, you know, testosterone fueled ex-soldier, you know, uh, this absolutely like, you know, uh, wanted to be in the thick of it. I had this desire to prove myself. You know, I just um, got through the, the probably the toughest selection in policing um, and I wanted to prove myself. So stupidly, even though I knew it would impact my personal life, my potential personal safety, potential safety of my family and others, I knew that, I knew all that, but I still wanted to do it because I was so driven, stupidly driven. And, and re no, my recollection from the book as well is, am I right in saying that they had, the force had looked nationwide for a, a good fit to take that role on and there simply wasn't anyone and even though you were so close to that area in your personal life you were deemed as the best fit and they were willing to accept that risk is that accurate yeah yeah i mean christy you know christy's um who, who you meet in the book my mentor and the level one uc trainer um he he sort of told me that you know that came from him it wasn't me making it up uh, he said look the, the moss side operation had been punted around the undercover network uh, and it was a case of, you know, Mossad has a real reputation in Manchester. You know, if you, if you, you don't have to Google it, you'll see what, what, what reputation it has. I mean, I, I must say this. My, my, my recollection of Mossad, I, I love, I love Mossad. It's full of fantastic people who do fantastic things for that community. It isn't, you know, it, it, is, it isn't all negative, that area. And I don't want, I mean, I'm very, I'm always at pains to get that point across because uh, I don't want to paint the picture that Moss Side is full of criminals and horrible people. It certainly is not. But it has suffered disproportionately with uh, criminality and gang crime over the years. And young, young, when 15-year-old young men are being shot dead in the street, the police have to do something about it. So um, two major gang leaders have just been put away for 40 years. And that's great. It's fantastic police work. It was done overtly um, for about several murders. And the gun crime in Manchester dropped by about 70% just because these two people were in prison. That's how dangerous and impactive they were. Um, but then you've got a vortex, haven't you? Because people want to get into that, fill, them, fill that space. They want that power. They want that reputation. They want that slice of the business. Now they're in jail, you know. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, someone's shoes to, to get into. And what, what we had to do as the police was get on the front foot. Intelligence-led policing, we call it. And so the best way to do it was um, put somebody undercover. So that, that got pumped around the undercover network, and people were like, no chance, too dangerous. No one wanted to do it. Um, our bosses of other forces, undercover units, were saying, risk too high, risk too high. So, you know, there was obviously some that were prepared to do it, but they weren't felt they had the right profile. You know, they weren't felt that they'd last two, two minutes there. So, yeah, I think it was a case of needs must, you know. We've, <coughs> we think a Mancunian would be the best to infiltrate this area. And so, like I say, probably foolishly, with an older, wiser head, would he have done it? Absolutely not. But with um, the young, just past level one police undercover selection, uh, it, was, it was exactly everything I wanted to do. Yeah, I don't want to go any further into depth on that Moss side piece, because I know that, I mean, that is one of the most riveting parts of your book, mate. Go listening to that whole experience because it's a very big section of it. And uh, un un unbelievable. And to be honest, I wasn't aware of Mossai's reputation until reading that book. And now I'm even more aware of the reputation. Good, also, the good work that's going on there. Um, question for you. Is there a, is there a situation, and, and there's a, I want to ask you another following question from this, something you said in the book. Is there a situation where, which particularly sticks in your mind as... Um, the most significant in terms of I might be in the shit here. I might I might 
I might not be walking out of this in uh, in one piece. Yeah. So um, uh, you know, I detail this in the book. Um, I was into a very very sort of serious gang member, uh, Con Anton, in the book. It was a very very serious you know serious criminal, you know, very very dangerous individual. Um, access to firearms, not afraid to use them. And I became his friend. And um, he asked me to pick him up one day. Um, wouldn't tell me where we were going. And, you know, I went with it. Uh, some would say I was foolish to go with it, but I went with it. You know, that to me is, uh, you know, it's managing risk undercover work dynamically and taking all the information you've got and thinking, okay, what's the best way to deal with this? And you could do nothing. You could say, but this too high, I'm doing nothing. But then for, for me, my thinking was, well, what are you doing there if you're not prepared to take a risk? So I picked him up, we started to drive, and, you know, it was a, as I describe it in the book, you know, a dark night, you know, start taking me down some winding country lanes in Cheshire, you know, and I'm thinking, this, no one knows where I am now, you know what I mean? I'm like, uh, there, isn't, there isn't like some police surveillance car following you everywhere you go, you know what I mean, undercover, you are on your own. It's down to you and your wits and guile to get yourself out of a situation. And I genuinely was driving down this um, uh, country road thinking, he's going to put one in me. He's carrying a gun and he's taking me to... So this is a great place to shoot someone in the head, you know, and leave them. It's a great remote place to do it. If I was going to do it, this is where I'd take And it. you thought he'd been rumbled, maybe? I thought he might have rumbled me. I thought he might have rumbled me. I thought he's just going to get rid of me. Because this was somebody that was capable of that, you know. He was capable of that. He had that in his locker. Uh, and I don't mind saying, I was driving along, you know, with some, uh, you know, the brown stuff uh, leaking into my underpants, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that. I think anyone would be. But all the time, my mind's turning. How am I going to get out of this? And at one point, I was even thinking of just slowing the car down, bailing, you know, uh, when, when I could see sort of a, a building I could head for, you know, and run and hope I was quicker than him. But I went with it. I went with it, you know. I overrode my uh, emotional brain and went with my... Uh, you know, my logical brain and um, manage the risk dynamically in my, in my head and putting things places, what can I do? How can I, how can I deal with this? If it does go wrong, is it going to go, you know, every permeation of conclusions I was coming up with. And uh, eventually what we did, we pulled up at a certain spot and he introduced me to his upstream uh, drug dealer. So, you know, I got, I, you know, I got the prize. You know, I got introduced to somebody who was a, a more, even more serious criminal just by having a set of balls in my pants, you know. <laughs> Reason I ask is um, uh, you you said something in the book, and I found myself disagreeing with you. And, and I've changed my mind again now, though. I changed my mind before before we start recording this, actually. I, so you said um, you said anyone doesn't feel fear in those uh, those situations where life's most at risk is a bullshit artist. They're bullshitting. You, everyone feels fear, and I've disagreed with you, but only because I was thinking of I was only thinking from my perspective of those times when I've been in those situations where I've got the advantage of. It's kinetic activity. Your fucking adrenaline's pumping. Everything. You are moving hard and fast. You have to think hard and fast. You know, in in uh, contacting. Yeah. Got yeah. five white belts. And I was thinking about the context you're talking about it in. In that context there, where you are, you are emitting a persona. You are pretending to be someone. And at the same time, absolutely shitting yourself. And you've got to keep it together. You can't even elicit... You can't make yourself look nervous. You can't make yourself look fearful. That is fucking hardcore. And then when 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 you when I thought of it like that, I thought, yeah, you're absolutely right. I would be shitting bricks. Do you know what? Um, I suppose it's um, to give it some context. Was I was I in those situations? As you say, they're in a contact situation. You know, it's kinetic. You're thinking. You you're moving. You got to do. You do or die in it. You know. 
Um, so the brain takes over, doesn't it? You know, the lizard brain takes over and uh, you just do what you train to do. And, and, and I wasn't sat in those situations, shitting my pants, you know, literally sitting there thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be dead. I wasn't sitting there or standing there thinking that, thinking that, that you know, I wasn't shitting myself in the moment. The fear, I think, is afterwards, you know, when you think that could have gone really wrong. That could have gone really, really wrong for me. You know, what, what was I doing? But again, yes, yes, there is fear, but you are somebody that has been evidenced through the training and selection. You know how to manage that maybe better than other people, you know? So my point was that I'm not some Superman that doesn't feel fear. We all have fear. And actually, fear can be a good thing because it helps you manage risk fear, doesn't it? You know, uh, what's the fear of the consequences? And it might, at times I did pull back from things because I thought that could go wrong. And that was fear creeping in. It wasn't me sitting there cowering, shaking in fear. It was me, the fear of what, what's going to go wrong here. Actually, don't do that because that could really ramp up the risk. So, yeah, when I say fear, it wasn't sitting in the corner cowering, being in fear. It's, it's, um, it's the fear of consequence and fear of uh, if this goes wrong. And for me, fear was healthy because it helped me manage risk. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Makes you sharper, right? Absolutely. Focuses the mind, fear. Yeah. Focuses yeah. the mind. When did you get out? When did you leave it? So, um, of undercover work or policing. Well, undercover work then. Uh, so, I left undercover policing about around 2012, something like that. So, um, How long ago then, really? Well, not, not, not really, no. And then, you know, I went on to have a, uh, a successful career um, as a detective, detective sergeant, uh, acting detective inspector. Uh, and I worked on, you know, some very, very high-profile cases. Did you find that satisfying as the undercover work? No, no, absolutely not. Once you, I think, once you've worked, um, once you've worked undercover at that level, uh, nothing else in policing is ever going to touch it. You know, um, it is for me the ultimate police work. Mm. Um, you know, it, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I loved working as part of a team in organised crime units around and stuff like that. But for me, as as the type of individual I am, being on my own undercover me versus them was the ultimate test and i enjoyed the test you know putting my mind against them pitting my wits against them who's smarter who's 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 quicker who's quicker on the feet uh, who processes information quicker you know and ultimately you know against the people i went up against i won because they went to jail and, I, and you know I, I got out with my life so you know um that for me was the ultimate professional buzz if you like so nothing ever did in police, you never came close to it, no. Were you working as a detective in that, for that, those later stages in your career? Was that GMP? Yeah, yeah I, worked, um, so I, worked for, I worked for GMP. I worked for the Northwest Regional Organised Crime Unit, uh, Organised Crime Squad. And then I also worked, uh, I finished my career with West Yorkshire Police. Did your personality did, and your persona, did that, would, would, did that fit well doing that? Doing those roles or not? Because you're not the most corporate of people. Uh, well, 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 this is it. <laughs> no, you don't look like it. No, no. Like it. Well, this is it. You see. No offense. Uh, yeah, but this is it. Um, whatever image the, the police like to portray this corporate image, you know, which I understand. You know, you've got to give off. A, I, I was always very professional. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the, you know, the police portray this corporate image. But behind that machine, behind that facade, you need people like me who can get into the criminal underworld and go and get information that keeps people safe. So. I handled informants for a couple of years um, and was very, very adept at that. You know, I was able to build relationships with criminals and make and give them, who, you know, sometimes we'd pay them, sometimes they'd have other motivations to give us information. You know, we took guns off the street, we protected people's lives. 
with, with, by doing that. And yeah, do you know what? The tie wearing detective sometimes is the right fit for the for the job. Sometimes it's me in my jeans and my t-shirt and my hat and my cap talking how I talk like a kid off a seat uh, a Manchester council estate because that's more they're more receptive to that. Sometimes it would it blow the mind. I remember one one lad who, who um, I was trying to recruit to be an informant said to me, "I need to think about this for twenty four hours because you're making me think. You, you, you remind me of my mates, and it's not and, and, and it's not right." You know, I need to think about it for 24 hours because at the moment I'm I'm just thinking. I thought shrewd of him, very shrewd of him to give himself that 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 you know that firewall, that break. Very very shrewd of him, you know. Uh, and he ended up grassing anyway. Flipping <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Fast, I mean it's, it's a fascinating. You know, the, the, the police is all is always it's one of those default options people think of going in after military, right? But when, when I think of police up to this point, and I'm reading your book, is I think the police are fucking, it's police. And then I think, oh, an SO19. You think police, you think armed police, don't you? And this, you know, this is a whole other area I wasn't aware of. Um, it's really attractive. All over the hill now, it's really attractive. But it's, I think because, like you were saying, it's, tip, it's like tip of the spear stuff. It's tip of the spear stuff. And you can't afford to fuck about you know, it's not like, oh, I made a mistake, let's, let's, let's sort it out next time. No, no, you make one mistake, fucked. Fucked. Either the operation's blown, or you were yeah. in a ditch, yeah. or in hospital, yeah. or family members, and it changes your whole life. I mean, how do, you, how do you transition from the police after doing that kind of role into being a civilian when you've got to factor in the security considerations, as you've mentioned? Um, well, move countries. It, yeah, I mean, I do. I, you know, I do spend most of my time abroad these days. Um, you know, um, so that obviously reduces the risk massively. Um, but I do, you know, I do visit Manchester. You know, I do come back to to the UK and places. And I, I think because of the the, the type of work I was always involved in, I, you know, I have a level of hyper vigilance anyway. You know. I always know how to walk in somewhere, how I'm going to walk out of there, you know? I'm not going all Jason Bourne on, on people, but you do, you know, you do have senses and skills that develop over years of doing that type of work that they never leave you, you know? They never leave you. And um, so I am always hyper aware anyway, you know? Um, I spot cars that may seem out of place, people that aren't right in a certain place, you know? They're not, they're not, might be not wearing the right clothing for the certain place, and, uh, you know? Um, and you just it's just some skills and you just you just do it on autopilot you know but you know when i talk about this in the book it made me quite unwell um my hypervigilance I, I became really unwell and this is why i was i was medically discharged from the police okay. um I, I was diagnosed with complex ptsd um which is you know it, i'm not really a fan of labels you know I'm not really, but they needed they needed a diagnosis and they needed to give me a label you know uh and Complex PTSD is, 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 as it sounds, complex. You know, it isn't just one situation that is, um, you can put your finger on and say that's what that's the problem. It's just, it, for me, it was a, a consistent hamster wheel of operation after operation after operation, bad management, poor, poor, really poor management, which hugely impacted me, which I talk about in the book. Um, constantly on the hamster wheel involved in some big operations you know unfortunately i was involved in an operation where two police officers were, were shot and killed um and also you know um 
I worked on the aftermath of the Manchester bomb and things like that. Oh, okay. um, yeah. You know, um, not 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 that that's um, anything that's caused me any issues. You know, my personal mental health, the Manchester bomb. I was lots and lots of cops. Well, you know, they went on the night and. You know, my God, they, they dealt with absolute carnage, you know, and I take my hat off to those cops, I really, really do. I was very much involved in the investigation after, afterwards, so much more, you know, less risk and slower pace. But, um, but yeah, so I just continually was involved in murder after murder, organised crime operation after organised crime, undercover operation, running informants, you know, and I would run it, I would, my days were 18-hour days, mate, you know. Uh, my phone would never stop, even when I was at home, it played havoc with my personal life. And because of the risk I always have to manage, I was always having, you know, one, one, one always, a look, always having to look over my shoulder. And that paranoia built, and um, I became quite unwell with it. Sleep well, I hope. Yeah, yeah, sleep, sleep went, you know, my sleep was all, my sleep pattern was all over. I talk about it very, I think, um, quite candidly in the book, which is very hard to do, you know, um, to talk about your own mental health, declining your own mental health, you know, I talk about it quite candidly, which I was a real pain to do or do this, don't I do it, you know. Um, because why did, why did you decide to do it? Because I think it's important. I think it's important that people um, who've been in roles like I have stand up and say, "If it can happen to me, it can happen to you." You know, there's, I mean, there's a Cambridge Cambridge uh, study that says one in five police officers is suffering with undiagnosed PTSD. Jesus, exactly. That's a massive number. Exactly. I mean, Google a study. You know, I've not made up these figures. It's a Cambridge study. It was done one in five cops have got PTSD, undiagnosed PTSD, and you know. Having served in the military and the police, um, both of both, you know, obviously can cause you to be involved in hugely traumatic events that are going to haunt people for a long time. The police is every single day, every single day. There's not a day you're not operational, unless you're in some back office somewhere. You know, if you're a frontline cop, undercover response cop, armed cop, there's not a day that can't go wrong. It could go wrong every single day. You know, you could see death and destruction twice, three, three times that week. And sometimes people, forget, you know, the cops get a lot of bad press of they've done this wrong, they've done that wrong. But behind the scenes, there's a whole world of machine going on where they've kept 100 people safe. There's 100 things, there's 99 things they've done right, but it's the one thing the press will pick up on and say they've done it wrong. Kids being saved, terrorist plots being foiled, people working undercover to stop guns and drugs coming into this country, you know, uh, whatever your view is on drug legislation, you know, whether it should be legalised or not. But um, keeping people safe, who, who uh, you know, there's people out there now plotting to kill people. This is happening on Britain's streets, you know. Um, MI5 and, and the police are working tirelessly every day to let people have the life they have. And I wanted to get my story out there, not to say, not because I'm dead egotistical and want to say, hey, I'm great. I wanted, I wanted, in a way, to level up the level it up a bit with the public and people go actually there is people out there who, who are actually doing a good job in secret putting themselves on the line at the risk of their own mental health their own personal safety and actually the impact on their family they're doing it to keep you safe in your bed at night you know and i don't think enough of that goes on with the police and it's been unfortunate you know um i, I always thought when i wrote the book that the biggest um trolls i get or, or come back from people would be you know criminals former criminals I've been involved with or whatever who might recognise me from the book or whatever, or criminals, you know, just a bit cop haters. And actually, you know, it looks really sad. The biggest, the biggest trolls have been cops. Thinking I'm lying. Or pulling apart little pieces of processing the book. It wouldn't happen like that. Well, I can assure you, it did. And, you know, I wanted to get across on this podcast today. When you write a book as sensitive as I have, 
You can't just write it and write what you want. You know, I, my, my book was published through Penguin, you know, the, the, the biggest publisher in the world. They did copious amounts of due diligence on me. I had to provide reference after reference, documentary evidence of who I am, what I've done. They don't just take your word for it. That then goes into a manuscript. The legal team trawl through that manuscript and rip it apart. Two years it took me to get this book to publication. Two years. That then, that then goes, went to the police to review it with their legal team. And said, you can counter. Tell us if you think this is any... If it's bullshit, tell us it's bullshit. If it's lies, tell us it's lies. If it's wrong, if it's inaccurate, this is your opportunity to counter it or tell us to get rid of it. Or challenge us legally and, say, and tell you you don't want it out there. So they had every opportunity to do that. And they asked me to change one thing, which was a process thing, not, not a situational um, um, thing that I'd been involved in. So the book is the truth. I did this stuff, you know. I, I did all this stuff. And there is other cops out there doing this stuff today. And I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of cops don't even know that this, this work was on. That, 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 so they, can't, they find it so fantastical, they think it must be bullshit because they don't, their force aren't involved in it or it's just a side of policing they don't know exists. But these cops, like me, I'm not unique. There is other cops out there today doing what I was doing. You know, bravely doing what I was doing. Yeah, unfortunately, that's a common thing, isn't it? I happen, you see it happen with the military as well. The first people to jump on the bandwagon start slagging something off are, are the same people from the very same community for whatever reason, for, you know, for whatever reason. But um, like you said, you don't know everything that goes on. Just because you were in the army, just because you were in the police, doesn't yeah. mean you know everything about Absolutely it. I'm not. still learning about military stuff now, even power edge stuff. Still learning about now stuff. Stuff that surprises me, you know. Um, mate, we were talking before before we started recording. Genuinely, there's not been. I haven't. It, it's been a long time since a book has has riveted me in a, in any way, shape, or form. I want to keep reading, honest case, listening. Keep 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 listening to your book. Mate, it's fucking brilliant. I'm not. I'm not joking. I don't. I, you know, I'm just saying it. It is absolutely brilliant book. It's fascinating. The way it's written is brilliant. The way it's is it. Who's who's narrated it? Uh, no, uh, the narrator is an actor called Chris Coggill, who's yeah, a sort of um, a very good Manchester actor, really, really good guy. Manchester accent, and uh, mate, it's a page turner. It is an absolute page turner. I've not had a chance to finish it yet because you flipping ambushed me with the podcast <laughs> 48 hours after go all of the book, but I'm going to finish it probably by the end of the day. Um, mate, great work. And uh, back to your point on the mental health, on the health, mental health piece, why I asked you why you wrote it, um, you know, because it's important to get out there. And I, I agree. Uh, even just, you know, someone reading about that, that aspect of your, your experiences, it helps them at the very least recognize any issues with themselves in future at the very at the very least or in a family member or a friend you know um one in five police undiagnosed ptsd 20 percent. that is unbelievable uh, it's not i believe it but I mean, it's crazy it's crazy. Mm. i have to look up the study that's crazy to say look at the detail of that absolutely crazy and um needs needs rectifying absolutely and that's that's why i wanted to write the book you know and i thought if one person can uh, be impacted by it and go and get themselves help and you know what the most satisfying thing that's happened on the back of this book is I have had cops contact me over Instagram, uh, you know, I'm on Instagram, Shado UK, uh, and contact me, you know, with uh, private messages, uh, saying, thank you for writing it. I don't feel like a freak now, because you, you've gone through something similar. And that, for me, has been like, and I'm going to go and get help, I'm going to go and speak to someone. That, for me, has been the single most satisfying thing of me writing this book. You know, and I haven't had many trolls. I've not had many bad reviews, you know, or anything like that. I'm a, probably a bit sensitive to that because it's my baby, that book. You know what I mean? It's, uh, Ignore that stuff. Yeah. Ignore it. It's yeah, gonna, yeah, it's gonna, yeah. It's... No, 
listen, 99% has been hugely positive <coughs> and very well received. You know, most people are sensible and get that sometimes you've got to duck and weave around some of the process stuff just to get the story out there, you know. Um, and uh, But the essence of the book is absolute truth. I did all that stuff, you know. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, the satisfying thing for me is both from the military community. The military community have been fantastic. The, the, the support I've had from the military community has been amazing. Honestly, people shouting for my book, Instagram posts and stories. Honestly, it makes me so proud to have served in the military. And then, uh, you know, the police in the main, the rank and file, fantastic, most of them. The odd one, like I say, you can deal with. But senior police officers, no one. No one's acknowledged that book at all. Why do you think that is? Uh, do you know what? I think, um, if I'm honest with you, they don't want to engage with me on social media and things like that, I think, because um, I call them out for what they are. <laughs> Shiny asses in offices, a lot of them, you know, and... and you know, a lot of them, not, a, not, not all, it's, that's very, very unfair of me, that. Some, some are excellent leaders, some are excellent people, uh, 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 you know, who, and I, who I respected professionally massively. Others, they, they've not done a day's policing in their careers, you know, uh, and I'm sure many, many cops would stand that up, what I'm saying, you know, yet they're meant to lead others, you know, and, and I just find what, what the view of police leadership is at the moment, uh, I, think, I think they've got a very odd odd view on what leadership is. I really do. Well, hopefully that changes. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Instagram at Shay Doyle UK. Shay Doyle UK, mate. Yeah, give us a follow. Give us a, yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I quite enjoy the interaction on there and stuff like that. Well, social media was an alien world to me before, given the, the career choices I had. But I actually quite enjoyed the interaction and uh, I must admit the, uh, the, in the main, I know social media can be negative and gets a lot of negative press. For me, it's been quite, uh, really nice. Nice people, which, you know, I, I like that. I like that. And the book is available where? Amazon, Waterstones, Asda, uh, WH Smith. It's Penguin, isn't it? So it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th I think it's going to be, um, uh, the paperback's coming out soon as well. That's going to be in, in the airports and stuff. So, uh, yeah, but the audio's very, very good on Audible. Um, so, yeah, go, go and get it, have a read. And you know what? Yeah, s s send, me, send me a message, send, you know, leave me a review. If, if it's crap, it's crap. If it's good, it's good. If someone takes something from it, great, you know. Um, it's just my story and that's what I wanted to do get it out there 100% mate it's mega you'll be getting a review for me and uh, mate thanks again for your time like really really glad we could make this happen no thank you for thank you for having me here and thank you for having me at short notice here as well so uh, no it's been a pleasure and thank you for the platform great good luck but I, I cut the cameras off a bit too early there I, I, I cut out the opportunity to give you any chance to plug anything you wanted to plug <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah. go for it yeah no thanks mate um, so yeah Tim M Davis um, he's a former uh, Parachute Regiment soldier and SS soldier. Uh, he's currently doing a challenge for uh, Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Bandits Charity. And he's, he's climbing three of the uh, tallest peaks in uh, Nepal. Uh, it's the 21,022 metre challenge. Uh, so fantastic. He's just finished his first uh, peak. So if people could have a look at Tim M. Davis on Instagram, uh, Pilgrim's Bandits Charity, and uh, you know, share, follow, like, and uh, just uh, give him some support. And hopefully if you can afford a few quid, maybe donate. It's for a great great cause for veterans 100% I'll throw some money that way from the podcast as well sweet good man thank you Shay. that is it thank you for listening you 
can become a patron of H-Hour by going to patreon.com forward slash hkpodcasts. You can support the podcast in that way. You get access to a very niche core group of H-Hour podcast supporters. You get invite to a private Discord community or Discord server. You get access to all of the podcasts before anyone else. And you also get access to private interviews that are done with each guest that are never put out publicly. H-Hour patrons see them. The public do not. So, for example, on this podcast, there was a pre-podcast interview done, which lasts in the vicinity of 10 to 20 minutes, where the guest was asked a specific set of questions, and all of the H-Hour patrons get to access that. And the H-Hour patrons chose the questions. Go to patreon.com forward slash hkpodcasts and become a patron. Another shout to those who brought you the podcast today. Rugby the Heroes, a not-for-profit organization raising money for military charities to support ex-military personnel and serving personnel on occasion in their hardest times, in their times of need. Rugby the Heroes were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving in Afghanistan in 2008. And since they were formed in 2009, they've raised in excess of £120,000. Look on their website, rugbytheheroes.org, to find out about the next events. They've got many coming up this year, and I will see you at one of them. Also bringing you this podcast today with the Aardvark Group. Aardvark have established themselves as a major player in its field, renowned for exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. They have got incredibly innovative technology that they deploy to help save lives. In essence, to reduce the risk of loss of life or severe injury through explosive threats. They also have an online shop where you can get kit on the man, on the woman kit. If you're an operator working in those kinds of environments, then head to aardvark.group. And when you're checking out, use the discount code HHOUR, aardvark.group. Also bringing you this podcast today with Combat Cigars. When you have a mess function, when you have a piss-up, when you have a get-together with the old crew, when you have a dining-in, a dining-out, a mess-do, whenever you think, man, we should get cigars in for this, think combat cigars. That's what you want to be getting. A veteran-owned, veteran-operated cigar company sourcing their cigars from the heart of Colombia and bringing them right here into the UK for you to enjoy. Particularly of popularity right now is the Victory Cigar, which features on its band the medal ribbon with rosette of the South Atlantic Medal, issued for those who took part in the Falklands campaign, recapturing the Falkland Islands after the Argentines invaded. Combatcigars.co.uk Thank you. Until the next time, out.